Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. Well, important news and somewhat of a breakthrough is the recently inked agreement between the federal government and wildlife advocacy groups to analyze environmental impacts of killing multiple mammal species in Northern California. Boy, so much to talk about here, and so I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show Camilla Fox. She is founder and executive director, Project Coyote. Welcome. Thank you, Peter. Great to be back with you. Okay, so by way of background, can you please uh, describe the situation up until now in California and and elsewhere in the U.S., if if you like, uh, concerning government-directed and executed killings of animals like coyotes and bobcats? What's the overall situation we're looking at here? This is really about a federal agency uh, under the U.S. Department of Agriculture, um, ironically named Wildlife Services, formerly known as Animal Damage Control. And this is an agency that spends millions of taxpayer dollars to kill uh, wildlife, um, in particular over 100,000 native carnivores. that includes wolves, bears, mountain lions, bobcats, and coyotes. And they largely do this at the uh, behest of agribusiness and livestock ranchers, ostensibly to reduce conflicts between predators and wild and, and livestock. But as we've pointed out in this lawsuit and multiple other lawsuits, um, unfortunately, this agency has been doing this with uh, very little oversight and accountability. And so with this particular lawsuit, we challenge the failure of this agency to properly analyze the impacts of the program on the environment and also on uh, wildlife, both target and non-target. And I should say not just wildlife, but actually um, all animals, because as we point out uh, in our our briefs on the lawsuit, um, even pets, dogs and cats, and and, uh, threatened and endangered species are killed. The lawsuit basically challenged the agency's failure to use the best available science. And best available science is a term used in uh, NEPA, which is the National Environmental Policy Act. And NEPA basically requires that agencies, federal agencies, fully analyze the impacts of a given program and that they provide alternatives. So we argued in the suit that they had not properly analyzed the impacts of killing millions of animals across the U.S. on the environment uh, and on uh, target and non-target animals. And who are the parties to the suit? Who are your collaborators here? So we have multiple organizations that are part of this, but um, to name a few, uh, the Center for Biological Diversity, the Animal Legal Defense Fund, the Animal Welfare Institute, Western Watersheds Project, and Wild Earth Guardians. And so we've been working together as a coalition on multiple lawsuits targeting this agency at a county level. Um, We've also petitioned the federal government to restrict the use or actually ban the use of a device called an M44, also known as a a sodium cyanide bomb. Um, This is a device that, uh, again, is used by this USDA Wildlife Services. It's an ejector device that is baited in the ground, um, used to kill coyotes, uh, dogs, and foxes. And um, as a group, we petitioned, again, um, this time we petitioned the Environmental Protection uh, Agency to 
ban the use of this device, and our arguments were that um, it is very dangerous to non-target animals. And this was on the heels of several incidents where a young boy and his dogs were, um, the young boy was uh, temporarily blinded um, when the device was accidentally triggered, and then the dog, he witnessed his dog dying before him after ingesting the sodium cyanide poison. And this is just a string of uh, incidents where non-target animals have died. Similarly, in Oregon this past uh, February, a gray wolf pulled up on the bait. So these devices are um, baited with rancid meat, attracting any animal that might pull up on them. And so a gray wolf uh, listed under the Endangered Species Act pulled the device and uh, subsequently died. So this coalition has worked together to petition the EPA to ban this device. So it's been a series of lawsuits and effort to really bring attention to the rogue way that this agency is running roughshod over America's wildlife and indiscriminately killing millions of animals every year at taxpayer expense. Animals Today listeners, many of them probably would be aware of the scope of the killing and also the out-of-control nature of wildlife services, so-called wildlife services, as you mentioned. But the general public really needs to hear more about this, and it's uh, very gratifying to see how much outreach you're doing. Talk about what you think the general public, how they view this. Well, when I give talks across the country, one of the questions I ask is how many people in the audience have heard of the USDA Wildlife Services? Almost invariably few hands, if any, go up. Mm. People have heard often of the Fish and Wildlife Service, and that's the agency that oversees, for example, threatened and endangered species, but very few people have heard of this Wildlife Services. And that's intentional. This agency has been operating under a veil of secrecy since 1931. And 1931 was the year that Congress passed the Animal Damage Control Act, which essentially authorized the Secretary of Agriculture to promulgate any method deemed necessary to control animals considered injurious to agriculture. And as mentioned, that's translated to two to four million animals killed every year largely at taxpayer expense, and largely at the behest of ranchers. And one of our you know, ongoing criticisms has been the agency relies on indiscriminate lethal tools, such as strangulation neck snares, the M44 sodium cyanide bombs that I mentioned, aerial gunning, which basically means shooting coyotes and other animals from the air, um, a, a myriad number of uh, non-selective tools. And really, in the big picture, this agency is completely out of sync with uh, current science and also current sentiment. I mean, over, over the last decade, more and more people appreciate animals. They appreciate wildlife, and they want conflicts to be addressed in the most humane manner possible. So these are all the, the issues that we've had with this agency, and they, as mentioned, have done um, all that they can to remain hidden yes. because they know that when the public finds out about what they're doing, uh, they are dismayed and often outraged and want to see an end to it. And the methods that you uh, referred to before and just sort of touched over the snares and the indiscriminate killing, these are otherwise illegal. This is not something individual can legally implement. 
unfortunately, many of these methods are legal. So, for oh. example, the organization that I run, Project Coyote, one of the things that we're trying to point out is that coyotes, bobcats, foxes, many of these animals across the U.S. have no protections whatsoever by our state governments. This is manifested in the classification that they are under, which is often non-game or fur-bearing animals. These classifications provide no protections. So what that translates to is that coyotes and bobcats and other species can be killed indiscriminately with methods like strangulation, neck snares, trophy hunting, and other methods, virtually with no monitoring or oversight by the state wildlife agency. Most people are shocked to hear that. Many of your listeners have probably heard about Cecil the lion, the famous lion that was killed in Zimbabwe in 2015 by a trophy hunter. That killing elicited global outrage. People were shocked that this dentist from Minnesota came over and spent $50,000 to basically hunt a beautiful lion for a trophy. We have tried to point out as an organization that in our own backyards, our wild cats, our mountain lions, and our bobcats continue to be trophy hunted, continue to be trapped for the international fur trade. And most people are shocked to hear that. So we are trying to expose that and then also shift the way that our state agencies manage or mismanage these predators to stop the most abusive, cruel methods like trapping, like killing contests, and this federal agency that I mentioned, USDA Wildlife Services. Okay, so now we sort of understand the landscape here. What did this agreement accomplish? What is its date? So the the lawsuit that we mentioned, the one that has targeted wildlife services in Northern California, the settlement agreement basically prohibits the agency from using uh, aerial gunning and um, dangerous strangulation neck snares in wilderness areas in Northern California. And it also restricts the use of pesticides and other kinds of killing methods throughout the region. And this is a region in Northern California that encompasses 16 counties. Meanwhile, the agency has to conduct a full environmental impact statement. And so what that means is that they have to fully analyze all the impacts of their program on the environment, on wildlife, both target and non-target, and open that up to public comment. So that means that all your listeners, the people, get to weigh in on that. And because this is a federal agency, those comments are not restricted to Californians. This is our federal tax dollars across the U.S. So when those public comment periods open up, we hope we can engage um, all Americans to weigh in and comment and Ideally, we will be able to shift the way this agency functions. Unfortunately, this agency um, has really been conducting these programs without this kind of federal oversight. So the settlement and the win on this, this particular area in Northern California, we believe, will be a catalyst to other kinds of efforts to make the agency more accountable and force them to have to do the proper environmental assessments that they must do under the National Environmental Policy Act. And this report must be completed within six years. Correct. So in the meantime, the very positive aspects that we view as conservationists and animal protection 
advocates is that the agency is restricted from using many of these uh, indiscriminate lethal tools um, throughout Northern California. Right. So we view that as a great victory um, in our efforts to reform this agency. Camilla Fox, Executive Director and Founder of Project Coyote. There's so much interesting stuff on the website. We'll just scratch the surface here. So, so where can our listeners go to learn more? projectcoyote.org, and we have a whole host of resources and information, and people can sign up for our e-team there to stay apprised of our work on behalf of wildlife. Thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. More with animals today after the break. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner. You're listening to Animals Today. You know, Animals Today is a project of advancing the interest of animals. Advancing the interest of animals is a nonprofit animal welfare organization. We're based here in Palm Springs, California. And if you like what we're doing, please consider donating a little bit to Advancing the Interests of Animals to support the continued production of the show. The website's aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Welcome back to the show. I'm so pleased to welcome Chris Delforce. He is the writer, director, and producer of the upcoming documentary, Dominion. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. So, Chris, this follows your uh, prior film, which was called Lucent. What is Dominion? So, Dominion, where Lucent focused on Australia's pig farming industry, Dominion is a much broader view of, of all the different ways that humans use and abuse and exploit animals for our own ends. So, it's, it's mostly looking at the ways animals are used for food, uh, but it's also looking briefly at, at how they're used for entertainment, for clothing, uh, for scientific purposes like medical testing, that sort of thing. So it's it's, it's in, in some ways an Australian version of, of the popular vegan documentary Earthlings um, because I've heard so many times, you know, people watch that film and they say in Australia, oh, that doesn't happen here or it's it's old footage or something. So I wanted to create something that... Um, that debunks that myth that somehow it's better in Australia. Um, so it's it's using Australian footage, but it's tackling global issues. And do you find that the situation and techniques and industry is similar in Australia compared to North America and Europe? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the practices seem to be very much the same, the way that these animals are housed and raised and slaughtered. It's, it's fairly similar across the globe. So how does this uh, film proceed? Is there a plot? Is there a story? Um, it it's basically takes you through one animal at a time, showing the way that, that um, the various ways that, that that species of animal is used. So it starts with pigs, um, and it shows how they're how they're bred, how they're raised, how they're kept, how they're slaughtered, that sort of thing. Um, then it does the same thing with uh, dairy cows, um, with uh, chickens, um, fish, turkeys, sheep, etc. Yeah. You know, our listeners are largely quite familiar, at least in general terms, about the nastiness of this, of the industry. Uh, who are you trying to reach in this film? Um there's two primary audiences. The most important audience um, uh, are non-vegans, people who don't realise that this sort of thing is happening because there are still there's still a staggering 
amount of people who just have no idea that, that this is going on uh, behind closed doors, out of sight. They don't know what factory farming is. They don't know that, uh, you know, in, in order to have eggs, it means that the male chicks born into that industry are being killed at just a day old, yes. being ground up alive or gassed. Um, they don't know that to have dairy, you have to um, continually impregnate the cows and then take away their babies. They don't know all, all these sorts of things. There's still a lot of, of, of misinformation and, um, unfortunately, ignorance um, about the realities of of modern animal agriculture. So that's the primary audience for this film. The secondary audience is um, vegans who want a tool to be able to go out to um, to do activism with, to, to hit the streets with new footage uh, showing, showing what's happening and to be able to say to their friends and family, their colleagues, etc. Um, I challenge you to sit down and watch this film and kind of put your put your money where your mouth is, so to speak, um, and see what you're supporting with your purchases and, and make an informed decision about whether you want to continue purchasing those things. Yes, I see how this is going to be another very effective tool. You do want to educate, but you need to uh, get people to see it, and it's nice to have this new footage. And so that leads us into the technology that you've used in this film. Uh, describe, please. Um, there's a lot of drone footage, so we're using a, uh, a Phantom 4 Pro drone, which films in uh, ultra-high definition, 4K. So there's a lot, a lot of drone footage showing the scale of these facilities, just the, this, these endless masses of sheds, um, you know, dotted across the landscape. Um, and then there's... Um, uh, more 4K footage from, from handheld cameras inside facilities. There's a lot of hidden camera footage from, uh, yeah, hidden cameras that are placed inside slaughterhouses or inside pig farms, that sort of thing to show what's happening when people don't think that they're being watched. Any close calls in obtaining these footage in terms of being caught or losing a drone or something like that? Plenty, plenty. Uh, the drone has been very stressful. Um, there's been a couple of different, uh, three different drones that we've used, and one of them seems to have a habit of, of landing in uh, unfortunate places. It uh, landed next to the parking lot of a slaughterhouse for some <laughs> strange reason, and that was a, a little difficult to get back. And then there's been other very close shaves where we've sent the drone off five kilometers out over the ocean to film fish farms and just managed to get it back with a couple percentage battery left before it went plummeting into the ocean so yeah plenty of plenty of close calls the film is going to be released this spring correct yes that's right yes in 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 the u.s it was spring uh march 29 is the official worldwide premiere date which will be in, in melbourne australia followed by other screenings across Australia and then screenings in the U.S. And in the meanwhile, I would encourage uh, listeners to view the trailer, which you can see online. And indeed, you get very great feeling of the scope of these operations from the air, don't you? Yeah, well, that, that's the idea, to show the scale of it, but also to show the stories of the individuals oh, who yeah. are lost in that scale. So it kind of goes from this, this huge 
overview with the drone right up to these macro shots of, of these animals' eyes to show yeah. just how much feeling and emotion and, and individuality is in each and every one of them. Okay, I can't wait to see it now. Interested people can help in the completion and success of this film. What can they do? So we're currently running a crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo. Um, probably the, the quickest way to find that campaign is to go to the Dominion website, which is watchdominion.com, and there's a link there to the crowdfunding campaign. And once they get there, they'll see all the opportunities, as is typical on these things, different levels of participation, and uh, really, there's going to be continuous building excitement about this. We're so uh, excited to be able to uh, tell our listeners about it, and wish you all the best, Chris. Thank you very much. That's Chris Delforce. He's the writer, director, and producer of the upcoming film Dominion. You'll know him from Lucent, and we are looking forward to seeing this one. Take care. Thank you. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Hi, it's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and today's Animals Today fun facts are about octopuses. Did you know the oldest octopus fossil was from an animal that lived 296 million years ago? And you can see that fossil at the Field Museum in Chicago. Octopuses have three hearts, one of which supplies blood to the organs, and the other two work to supply the gills. And their blood is a blue color, which transports oxygen better at cold temperatures and in low oxygen waters. And there are your Animals Today fun facts for today. Welcome back. I'm pleased to welcome attorney Barbara Gislason, who is internationally known as a pioneer in the practice of animal law. Her extensive resume includes holding national leadership positions, lecturing around the world, numerous media appearances, and currently she serves on the ABA Special Committee on Bioethics and the Law by presidential appointment. She's in private practice in Minneapolis in family law, animal law, and intellectual property law. And her new book is titled Pet Law and Custody, Establishing a Worthy and Equitable Jurisprudence for the Evolving Family. Welcome, Barbara. Well, I'm so pleased to be here. What a great opportunity to speak to your audience. I feel the same way. And why don't you start by explaining the title of the book, Pet Law and Custody? Initially, the reason I wrote the book was the family lawyers in the American Bar Association biggest bar association in the world of lawyers, wanted me to write a book about pet custody disputes, which is a lot of uh, problems with cohabiting people, going to uh, rescue, adopting a dog, one person's name is on the paperwork, another person paid for the dog, and or with a breeder where only one person's name shows up. And that person says later, that dog is mine. So I thought this would be straightforward and easy to write. And what I found out was, first of all, 
the legal uh, framework for pet custody disputes did not exist five years ago when I started this project. And so I went through 150 decisions about companion animals trying to figure out how I could build a framework for pet custody disputes and ended up uh, writing eight chapters of completely different uh, subjects because I got so deep into the research. So that's one reason I ended up with the chapter on tort law, which is one of the things you wanted to talk about today. It is, and I'd like to mention that one of the ideas that you bring forth, uh, aside from tort law specifically, is that if your readers want consistency, they should look elsewhere. It's just not there yet, right? Right. We are, we are in stage one of the development of companion animal law. Not even two. We're at stage one. My book is stage one, almost effectively. Uh, it's the first book of its kind in the world. It's 702 pages, and it tells you how to take across eight areas and cobble together a jurisprudence to advance uh, pet custody. But on the way, you you learn contract law, yep. tort law, alternative dispute resolution and mediation, criminal law, and a lot else. Yes, it does touch so many other areas. And five years, that's an incredible uh, effort you've made. Um, my friends will tell you that I, I moved to the Arctic for five years because they did not see me. All weekend, every night, I worked on this book. Gee. Well, I'm enjoying reading through it. You know I have no formal legal background, but still, I'm getting so much out of it. So the audience is not only uh, practicing lawyers, but really anyone who's interested in animal welfare could benefit from reading this. I definitely believe that's true. I think that probably 70% of the book people could read and get a lot out of that aren't lawyers. Um, Some of the case discussion um, that goes into the weeds might be annoying to some people. But for the most part, I think I I wrote a very accessible book. I tried to, I, I, I kept working and working and rewrites to make it accessible to a popular audience. And I'm really talking about the progression of laws particularly in companion animal law, but also animal law in general. And I'm making a pretty strong argument in the book that our old classifications on one side, the word person, on the other side, the word property, I'm making a pretty strong case that we are no longer in those two categories, and we are now in an interim category between the two. And more and more animals are making their way into this interim category. If you read the case itself and did not know how the judges were classifying it, you still might think, oh, it's still a uh, personal property classification. But if if those words were blocked from you and you just had to guess what the court was saying, they are thinking about uh, a lot more animals in an interim category between the two categories. And a state that sets the example well is, is that a neighbor of your state, Oregon, Uh, where the courts now have decided, and this sounds kind of obvious, but not so obvious anyways, the idea that an animal can be a victim of an animal cruelty crime. That sounds like kind of obvious, but that's groundbreaking in the world that Oregon realized that an animal could be a victim of an animal cruelty crime. Because there has to be some element of personhood or or something 
intermediate. That was sort of the struggle. The, the statute itself had words like person in it, even though the intent of the legislature was clearly to protect animals. So a guy who... Um, who had had a farm with, you know, dead and dying, a variety of hooved animals, you know, decomposing and everything, they were going to basically slap his hand and let him go. And the attorney general of Oregon got involved, and uh, he got charged with uh, crimes for each animal that suffered. Okay, so... Pretty, pretty phenomenal case. Yeah. Okay, so please, for our non-lawyer audience explain what a tort is and how tort law affects pet law well the concept of a tort is everyone is supposed to act reasonably and if they don't and somebody gets injured the person who gets injured can sue you so if you're riding your bike and you don't look around and smash into somebody you might be liable for a tort um, because you were not looking in front of you on the street Mm -hmm. Torts also apply to animals. So if your dog gets off the leash, your leash, and goes and bites another dog or bites another person, or a person is afraid and falls down trying to escape your dog, they can sue you in a civil action called a tort. And they can a lot of times get more money if they think you deliberately caused them to get hurt, called an intentional tort. Versus you were just negligent and not watching where you were going. But that's the way. It's kind of the civil counterpart to a criminal charge. But this is where the person in society you know, goes after the person who caused them to get hurt for money. And regarding animals, what sorts of topics are included there? A big, a big one for for dogs in particular is dog bites. Uh, for horses, it's obviously you know people getting uh, hurt or thrown. You know, people don't say there's a dangerous um, horse or one with violent propensities that's concealed, for example, from somebody. But there are also torts involving veterinary malpractice. So, for example, an example of a vet malpractice case that has come to my office is the uh, veterinarian uh, used the wrong kind of thread on internal organs. So there's a kind of thread you would use on the skin, a totally different kind of thread than you would use on internal organs. And so everything went wrong in South Mm. for that poor dog Mm. because of that kind of mistake. And historically, um, uh, veterinarians were treated completely differently than, than medical doctors for humans. And the new trend, starting with a, What's called a case, and that's how the law is evolving, called Price v. Brown in 1996. There, there the court said in Pennsylvania, our old ideas about bailment, treating a dog, going to a veterinarian just like a car, are really kind of, and they didn't say stupid, but you could kind of tell they meant stupid. Mm-hmm. You know, they, this really should be the same legal analysis as for doctors, and, and that's really the case that changed the world. And that's the really interesting thing about these animal cases. One brilliant, well-written and brilliant decision by uh, an appellate judge can change the entire country. It's kind of an exciting place to be working in this area. You have many uh, 
glowing testimonials. One I really like is by Paul Waldau, who is uh, well known to this show. Uh, I just want to read for a second. He says, this thoughtfully crafted volume reveals that grasping the significance of animal law requires a dance of partners, practicality, compassionate, legal precision, and an open hearted vision. Pretty nice. Uh, Paul's a pl- Paul is a splendid guy. He you know, taught at Harvard Law School for a long time. He's done a lot to ed- educate the veterinary community about animal law issues. Uh, he's a visionary, and um, he's written. You, you know, it's funny. You know, people worry about lawyers writing books. You know, that are hard for the public to write. Paul wrote a book that I will give him credit. It was kind of a PhD level book on speciesism. I think I want to get a PhD just to fully understand Paul's book. He is he is in the stratosphere for brilliant. Well, you're a visionary too, and this book is quite accessible, as I mentioned uh, before. What would you say is hot right now in animal law? Uh, pet custody is really hot. I'm going to be going to an international congress in Toronto in a month, and they had never had in a family law program a word about animals before. And now lawyers from all over the world are going to be talking about my book and how some of the same principles apply there. And the people putting on the this um, program are really excited. You could, yeah, it's so that it's that is very hot because. Well, for one thing, laws are just starting to get passed. I mean, literally, as I turned in my book, Alaska put in a clause in its statute that the court could think about the best interest of an animal in making a pet custody award, followed by, just about a month ago, uh, Illinois has now passed a statute that the best interest of an animal can be considered in a property award. A property award, you know what I mean? Yep. So it's it, this is all changing. Um, you don't usually think about the best interest of a chair or a sofa, but now all of a sudden, best interests of animals have hit the radar in two states. Barbara Gislason, thank you so much. The book is called Pet Law and Custody. Thank you. It's Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today Radio, and I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild to animals on farms and in agriculture to our beloved dogs and cats, Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. And yes, Animals Today is your home for a serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love Animals Today. So make sure to join us on this station each week. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Animals Today. Peter, did you know December 4th, it's International Cheetah Day? Hmm. So I thought I'd talk a few minutes about cheetahs. 
Peter, did you know the cheetah is the fastest land animal in the world? I knew that. Reaching speeds up to 113 kilometers per hour, which is about 70 miles per hour. Mm. And they can go from zero to 60 miles an hour in only three seconds. Of course, their slender, long-legged body is built for speed. And they can make these quick and sudden turns in pursuit of their prey. And they have exceptionally keen eyesight. When they're running, they use their tails to help them steer and turn in the direction they want to, like a rudder of a boat. Usually their chases are over in less than a minute, right? So they're not long-distance runners, they're sprinters. So here's a question for you, Peter. How can cheetahs be distinguished from other big cats? And I'll give you multiple choice, okay? A, by their smaller size. B, by their spotted coats. C, by their smaller heads and ears. Oh, that's tricky. I'm going to go with C. Actually, all the above. They also have very distinctive tear stripes that stretch from the corner of the eye to the side of the nose. Cheetahs only need to drink once every three to four days. Cheetahs are diurnal animals, thus more active during the day, and therefore they do their hunting during the light hours. They rely on the tall grasses for camouflage when hunting. Sadly, and like so many of our majestic, beautiful animals in the wild, their numbers are dwindling. In 1900, there were over 100,000 cheetahs across their historic range. Today, an estimated 9,000 to 12,000 cheetahs remain in the wild in Africa. And another very interesting fact, did you know that unlike other big cats, cheetahs cannot roar? Oh, that's interesting. However, they they purr mm-hmm. on both the inhale and exhale like domestic cats do. Yeah, I wonder how they use that purr. That's interesting. Does it make you want to hug a cheetah? No, it does not. <laughs> so there you go, Peter. International Cheetah Day, December 4th. Thanks, Lori. You're listening to Animals Today. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com and check us out on Facebook. I now want to welcome Tam Warner Minton. She is the author of a new book called All Fish Faces, Photos and Fun Facts About Tropical Reef Fish. Welcome, Tam. Thank you for having me. Okay, this is a sweet little colorful book. Why did you put it together? Why did you write it? I, I wrote it because I want people who are not scientists and probably who aren't people that go to the beach very often to meet and see sea creatures uh, because we really need to be doing something about preserving our oceans. And I think the way to do that is to get people to care about the animals that live within it. It features a uh large variety of beautiful color photos taken by you, except for perhaps the one or two that have you in them. Uh, What's your background in underwater photography and scuba? Well, I've been diving for about 30 years. Uh, I'm not a professional photographer. Um, I'm I'm certainly an enthusiastic one. Um, I love to document the ocean world. It's it's like being on a different planet. That's why I wrote the book. I wanted to bring it into their home. If I can't take them to the ocean, I want to bring the ocean to them. And I could imagine a reader, uh, particularly uh, a younger one, paging through this and just uh, letting their imagination uh, take them away. Aren't they colorful? They are really nice. And you've also decided to focus on their faces. Why is that? Well, you know, I know it's it might sound silly to people who are not um, in the ocean a lot, but fish have personalities. And getting up close and looking at their faces, I think, 
almost humanizes them for people. Um, they can relate to, you know, two eyes and a nose and a mouth. So the photo of the huge grouper, tell me about that. Uh, what was it like to be next to such a huge creature? <laughs> that grouper was really big. Um, you're talking about the potato cod, I'm sure. Uh, the fish that I was with in Australia. Those animals are just huge. And I wasn't afraid or anything, but they were feeding them. So they were kind of darting in quite quickly. So my face kind of reflects the fact that I didn't know where, which direction they would be coming from. Yeah. So indeed, you've traveled the world diving. What's your favorite reef spot, say, in North America? Um, I would probably say Cozumel. I've been diving there for 30 years. The reef that I like the best is Columbia Shallows. Uh, It's just full of life. Turtles and a shark now and then, which I know probably sounds kind of scary, but it's not. It's it's exciting to see them. The fish life in Columbia Shallows is just phenomenal. And the coral is incredible. It's just mountains of coral. Since you mentioned coral and we're talking about animals that inhabit these reefs, what's your understanding of what's happening to the reefs around the world? People are talking about them bleaching and dying. Is it really a crisis or is that overblown? No, it's, it's very much a crisis. And one of the one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, because, you know, you look at these animals, these creatures without a coral reef, they will not survive. And if they don't survive, then the animals that feed upon them won't survive. And those are the animals that we eat. We get medicine from the reefs. We get food and nourishment from the reef. And we get 70 percent of our GDP is from the ocean products, not mm-hmm. from the land-based products. So it's very important for humans that those reefs remain pristine, and they are dying at an alarming rate. And since you mentioned uh, food that we eat, uh, maybe I'd like to raise this, and maybe you can e- explain or elaborate, because you advocate the consumption of certain sea creatures uh, using resources from the Monterey Bay Aquarium's Seafood Watch. Don't you think it would be better just to not eat any of these fish at all and go plant-based? That's what we like. Well, yes, of course. Uh, if if we can all become vegetarians, that would be the best thing. But I, I don't think that that is going to happen, especially in the United States, where we are a meat-eating carnivorous nation. So if you're going to eat fish... I think it's good to have a source where you can see what is fished sustainably. I'm a little bit more, quote unquote, optimistic than you are. I'm hoping for a plant-based world. How's that? I think that would be fantastic. Okay, okay. I I am all for it. Great, Tam. It's Tam Warner-Mitten. The beautiful book is called All Fish Faces. Thank you very much for sharing it with us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. And this is Peter Spiegel encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Hi, this is Dr. 
talk to Lori with your Animals Today Minute featuring one of my favorites, the cheetah. December 4th is International Cheetah Day, and unfortunately, they are Africa's most endangered big cat, with only about 10,000 remaining in the wild. These speedy carnivores can reach 70 miles per hour as they hunt their preferred prey, small antelopes. Cheetahs use their long, muscular tail like a rudder and stabilizer, permitting quick turns at high speeds. Cheetahs have about 2,000 small round spots, each animal with its unique pattern, which allows observers and scientists to identify them. Their characteristic dark tear streaks are thought to aid their vision by reducing glare. And that's this week's Animals Today Minute.